know, over the last few weeks, we've been looking at this idea of this concept of the sort of interior castle, and I want to come at that um, idea as well of the interior castle. And uh, just take a moment, just consider, if I said love is blank, what would it be to you? What would be the, the word? What would be the, the phrase that came after, love is? I'd imagine we'd get a, a, a variety of responses. I always say, um, I haven't said it for a while, but I used to say to Rachel, love is the burnt toast. <laughs> love is the smaller half of the chocolate bar, which is to be shared. You know, sometimes in those small acts of self-sacrifice, <laughs> love is found. And although that's silly, you know, actually there's some truth in it, isn't there? There's some truth in, well, I've just, I've just done that toast. That slice is the most burnt. I'll take that. I mean, you have the least burnt piece because you don't eat anything that's brown, apart from chocolate. <laughs> Lana can have that one. Rachel, I'll, I'll take the burnt one. You know, sometimes small acts of love speak volumes, don't they? So love can be small, but love can be huge. Martin Luther King said, darkness cannot drive out darkness, only light can do that. Yeah. Hate cannot drive out hate, only love can do that. You see, love brings joy, it brings happiness, love brings uh, discipline, love can bring um, restoration, Love brings reformation, love saves, love hurts, love transforms. You know, love is many things to many people at many different times of their life, but love is always important. And it's always important because, as we're told in 1 John 4 verse 8, God is love. You know, love is a fundamental part of who God is. So in whatever form it takes, love is just so important and foundational for our lives. And I want to think about that in terms of this concept of an interior castle. I want to not think about the castle and its walls so much, as I want to think about the foundations that that castle is built on. And in reality, we tend not to think of foundations too much. You know, we know that we go and we they, they dug deep. We dig a trench, we fill it with stuff, but actually we often forget about the foundation because we can become very preoccupied with that which is on top, that that's visible, that that we see and experience, that which we want to look nice. And the foundations can be something that we almost take our eye off because they're a thing that were, were to do with preparation, not with the real thing. They were a thing that, were, that are dug in the dark and the dirt and then we forget about them. And actually, I would say, and I was sharing with the pastors a while ago, foundations aren't just meant to be uh, functional. They are important, but they're also beautiful. In Revelation 21, we see the new Jerusalem descend from the heavens. And it says the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. It then moves on in verse 19 to say, the foundations of the city walls were decorated. They weren't dark, they weren't just functional, they were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third one beginning with C, the fourth <laughs> emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth carnelian, and, and so on. You know, the foundations were decorated with beautiful gemstones. They weren't just functional, they were important, but they were beautiful. 
And this morning, every morning, your interior castle stands on the precious beauty of God's love for you. And sometimes something can become so familiar, we forget to give it the awe-inspiring attention it deserves. And we mustn't ever forget how beautiful God's love for us is. Because that's the base on which your life is going to be built. So I want to consider love for a uh, little bit of time and what it, what it means biblically and what the Bible tells us about love. And if we start in the Old Testament, there's two words that in the Hebrew dominate the concept and the idea of love. One is Ahab. And Ahab um, is a word that basically means to, to have an attachment to something, to, to want to possess something. Now I'm a when I'm not here, I'm ahead of sixth form and lots of sixth formers experience Ahab love. They, they fixate completely on one person to the point that I have to often bring them in and say, there's like other things in life than the person who you've just decided to put nose to nose. They, they become, they lose their one, their um, individuality. A Fiona and Brad become frad. <laughs> because there's this complete desire to, to possess to have an attachment to something, you know, and, and that's Ahab, love. But the other Old Testament word is hesed. And we've just sang hesed, love, there, with great is thy faithfulness. Because hesed refers to a love that it, the Bible translates hesed as loving kindness, as steadfast love. You know, it's... It's a word, hesed, which refers to a love that is characterised by mercy and grace. Hesed is a love that's characterised by truth and reliability. A, a, a love that is characterised by faithfulness. That's what hesed loves is. And if we look at it for, for a moment, they sort of break hesed into three words. Love, steadfastness and strength. Now, if you consider strength and steadfastness on their own, the, the fabulous qualities, being strong and being steadfast, is a great quality. But on their own, they're actually qualities that can be, that can lack warmth. Yeah. They can almost be quite legalistic. I will be strong, I will be steadfast. Yeah. And love on its own is sometimes in danger of being quite sentimental. Yeah. But Hesed combines the three. And when you combine love, with steadfastness and with strength, you begin to get a real understanding of the Lord God has for you this morning. It's not sentimental and it's not lacking in warmth. It's a love which is strong and steadfast for you this morning. Yeah. You know, there's a love that speaks of generosity, a love that's loyal, a love that's true, a love that's merciful. That's what Hesed means to you but in that respect it's a love that demands choice hesed is a love that demands choice because it'll be defined by the specific acts that come from it so you choose to forgive you choose to express hesed love you choose to be truthful and you choose to be honest you choose to be reliable. You choose to be steadfast. You choose to accept all of the object of your love. You choose to be faithful. You choose to protect. You choose the burnt toast. Yeah. 
You know, the choice is what expresses hesed, love. The choice to act in love. And actually through, through the choosing, the love is rendered permanent by the choosing. You know, that's why it's so important. I, I hope to see Hesed in my life, in my marriage, in my, in my work, in my faith, because it's a love that speaks of I choose a deeper, stronger, steadfast, faithful, merciful, generous, loyal love. I choose that for my life. And I know we see that on the cross, and we'll come back to the cross in a bit. And I said it translated as loving kindness. And steadfast love, and I was, it brought to mind the lyrics um, or the words from William Reese's hymn, Here is Love, Vast as the Ocean, Loving Kindness as the Flood, When the Prince of Life, our ransom, shed for us his precious blood. There your foundations, love expressed, the strong, merciful, faithful, graceful, truthful, reliable. So that's the Old Testament. And then I was thinking, right, so New Testament. So the New Testament, again, has two words which tend to dominate the expression of love. One is uh, filio. And filio is similar to Ahab, really. It's to, it's to have great tender affection for something. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. Please don't get me wrong. I, I, it's not a bad thing to have tender affection for something, to really cherish something. That's important, but I'm just trying to draw a distinction between the two. That's filio. Agape, which you've probably heard of, um, is the other type of love that dominates in the New Testament. And agape describes the attitude of God towards his son. Um, Paul talked us through it this morning. You know, John 17 verse 25 says this, Righteous father... Though the world does not know you, I know you. And they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. You see, God loved Jesus as a father loves his son. A special love. You know, and as Jesus... We're in Jesus. God loves us in the same way. Yeah. Yeah. God loves you this morning as he loved Jesus. Yeah. That's foundational. Yeah. That's what we need to build lives on. Yeah. You know, so Agape describes the attitude of God towards his son and therefore the attitude of God towards you. Agape describes the very nature of God that it is to love. Agape describes how we should be to one another, yeah. how we should love one another. That should be foundational to our lives. And similar to Hesed and Ahab, what I love is, you see, it's not a love that is drawn from the excellency of the object. It's not a case of, well, you know, you look fabulous today, so therefore I choose to love you. And you do, you look lovely. You know, but that, it's not a case of that. It's not, you know, Chris and Nigel's hair looks fantastic this morning. I choose to love them. You know, that's not the case. It's not something about what is an excellency about something that draws love from me. That's not what Agape and Hesse describe. And I think that's a good job, really. 
Because I don't know about you, maybe you do, but I don't always feel overly excellent. <laughs> I don't always feel like, oh, well, I, I'm that good. God's just bound to love me. I dressed pretty well this morning. It's a given. You know, those aren't the sort of things that I think, you know, express the sort of love we're talking about. You know, because I think if we rely on our excellence for the love of God, then to use the Greek, we're stuffed. (laughs) It's not about being excellent. Agape love is a love which is known by the actions it prompts. So what I mean by God's not going to love you because your hair looks good this morning. God loves you because he's compelled to love you. Because you're his creation. And he loves everything about you. The rough edges and the shiny ones. He just loves you. And I love you. Not because your hair's wonderful this morning or you've dressed particularly well, which of course you have. But because I understand how much God loved Jesus. And I understand that he loves me in the same way. And from that love, a love for, for you is drawn from it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's a compulsion that comes from understanding how much God loves us, how much God loved Jesus. It's a deep, compassionate love. 1 John 4 verse 9 says, This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. God loves you so much that he gave his son. Gave his son's life that you could gain eternal life. You know, he, he was compelled to act in love because of his love for you. That's what agape expresses. So God expresses agape. And I think, well, what does that look like? Uh, what does agape love look like? We, we, we can get it from God's perspective, but what should it look like for us? How is our lives meant to look? And I thought I've broken it into just three things. Jesus is the perfect expression of God's agape love for us. Then Jesus was sacrificed. And Jesus was willing to be sacrificed. And I think that just highlights the first element of what agape love is. It's a sacrificial love. It's a love marked by choice. It's a love marked by being willing to obey God's commands. Like I said, you choose loving kindness, you choose grace, you choose mercy, you choose faithfulness, you choose to be truthful. You choose to sacrifice what you think is best for what you know is best. Because you believe in God's commands. The second thing that characterises agape uh, love is a love which seeks the welfare of all. And the third thing is a love which seeks the opportunity to do good. Are we obeying God's commands? Sacrificing self for what he says? Do we seek the welfare of all? And do we seek every opportunity to do good? Because that's how agape is expressed in our lives. They're the foundations that the rest of the castle is to be built on. They should just be at the root of everything of our lives. 
and let's not get distracted by what stuff looks like on the surface and make sure that looks nice. Let's really understand the conscience and the drive behind our actions and how we choose to behave. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, an expression of agape in 1 Peter 3, 10 to 11, whoever would love life and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from deceitful language. He must turn from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. You know, it's not that love of a thing. That's not what it's about. It's a, it's a choice to be love. It's a choice to behave yeah. as love. Because yeah. agape is that unselfish, sacrificial love. A love that values and a love that esteems. But let's just think for a minute then about the concept of foundation. So let's go back to that, if that's all right. If we're saying that this is the kind of love that's meant to be foundational to, to what we build our lives on. Your foundations, therefore, don't depend on your excellency. They don't depend on how good you are, how good you look, how well you brush up, whether you chose to read your Bible this morning before coming or not. Your excellency isn't important as such for your foundations. Because our foundations, in fact, are going to be somewhat the opposite. They're nothing to do with how good you look. They're actually to do with how broken you are. Foundations are deep, deep trenches dug deep and after they've been dug they get filled and they get filled with something often called hardcore okay i used to work at b and q <laughs> other diy establishments are available <laughs> and we you know we, we sold hardcore went out on the, the wagon delivering one day you know because it was to go in foundations and all hardcore is is just broken stuff Broken bits of brick, rocks, all sizes, all shapes, and you tip them into the foundations. So why is brokenness at the, at the bottom? Why does it need to be there to enable the, the construction of, of something? Because when the weight of what's going to be built goes on top, so when the weight of your life is built on top of the foundations that God's placed within you, actually the weight of, of what's put on top it, it crushes and it compresses the, all the bits, the looseness, the broken material, the, the hardcore. And as they're crushed together, they bond and they provide a stability that enables you to build a life, a castle on top. So it isn't about your excellency, it's about your brokenness. So I got thinking and praying about, well, well, what's that mean then? And then I suppose, well, I thought, well, I've just been studying all about love and the reality is God's love for us comes out of brokenness. Hesed described a steadfast, merciful, gracious, generous love, a love that's true and faithful and reliable, um, not attached to an object. It's a choice. And actually, because it's a choice, that makes it like a covenantal love. Yeah. 
because you choose it, you choose to behave in that way. And I thought, well, any act of choice is sacrifice. When you choose what you know is right before God and for others, you choose to sacrifice yourself. Because given the opportunity, most people will make decisions which benefit themselves in life. You'll meet many, many people who will spend lots of time thinking about themselves. Let's be honest, we do it now and again, don't we? Only now and again, like once a year or something like that. But that's what happens. But actually, the, the choice to love in a hesed, agape way is actually the choice to break self, the choice to be self-sacrificial, to say, I choose not to live and behave in that way. I'm going to break off that desire to possess something. I'm going to choose to break all those things down yeah. and just be humble before God. And I think that's what agape love is, an expression of God's love for us, a way we're meant to act towards one another, a love marked by sacrifice, a love marked by seeking the welfare of others. Nothing's more broken. Nothing's more an expression of love than a love which prioritises others over self. You break your pride. You break your need to provide for yourself. You break your self-reliance. You destroy selfishness and you choose to follow the commands of another. And time and time again we see it in the Bible and it's not easy because we see Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane saying, God, you don't say it this calmly either. You're going to ask me to sacrifice my life for mankind. And we know he wept. And he sweat blood. And he pleaded with God. Let this pass from me. Let me not need that action. But he still chose to do it. Not my will, but your will the perfect expression of agape love. He gave his life on the cross. He chose to submit. He chose to love. He chose to obey. And in doing so, he established the most beautiful foundation you'll ever need to build your life on. And then I got to thinking about Abraham and Isaac. And it's such a hard story to think about. Yeah, my mind went to Mount Moriah. And just prior to them getting there, God's called out to Abraham and he said, he calls out and Abraham answers with, here I am. Abraham's first response is a servant's response. That tells everything that Abraham understood. What he said, agape love meant to follow commands. He said, here I am. And God says, take your son. And then he ex exemplifies it further. Take your only son, Isaac. He names him. Who you love. Take him and sacrifice him as a burnt offering. And Abraham obeys the command and Hebrews tells us that it was because he was confident in God's love that he knew that God could resurrect Isaac. But a, a three-day journey with my son, 
to a mountain where I hope God's going to intervene. But I'm called to sacrifice him. I can't even begin, can't even begin to understand how broken Abraham must have felt. When Isaac says, so where are we going? Where's the lamb? Where's the sacrifice, Dad? And Abraham just says, well, God will provide. I, I can't imagine looking in my son's face and saying, God will provide. And I just think, you know, stone after stone as he builds the altar. Oh, God, not this way. Is this what it's going to cost me, God? As he builds the altar to sacrifice his own son. And he lays the wood on top and he, and he, and he lays Isaac on top. And Isaac, what was, what was he thinking? As he felt the, the, the wood dig into him. And he looked at his dad as his dad lifts a knife. Oh, what brokenness. And then an angel calls out and Abraham says, here I am. Still the servant's response. Here I am, still choice. I think they were probably quite at the end of self at that point. Right at the end of self. Way past the end of self. And I think in that moment of covenantal obedience, of self-sacrificial agape love, despite all the broken confusion, God steps in. He knows that covenantal love Abraham's just shown his total. He just sees it in the crushed, broken love before him. And he responds. And he tells Abraham, he provides a replacement, and he says, I'm going to number your ancestors as the stars. There is an eternal life built on those foundations of covenantal, self-sacrificial, agape, hesed, love. And being honest, sometimes does the story provoke a little bit of in your heart. Yeah, it was a story God was to go on and repeat and actually go through with because he does sacrifice his own son. Yet sometimes, again, does that provoke the same? That feels wrong. Does it? You know, you just think, that, that story of Abraham and Isaac, you can just say that feels wrong. But, and then, do we feel like that? About Jesus' sacrifice? Or are we so familiar? Are we so familiar that we forget how much it cost? That we forget how broken it was? When we really think about the foundations God's given us to build our life on. Let me tell you one more story. I'm going to read it, if that's all right. And it's in the first person, because it's me. Alicia, could you just pop the first picture up? And when I wave next time, stick the second one up. So I stand before a broken cross. 
My eyes, which were initially fixed on Jesus, now glance up at the jagged outline where the cross has been separated from its base and I hear the call of heaven. My family and I are gathered in a small wooded clearing in the French countryside. There's a muffled quiet as though sound shuns this place lest it disturb the poignancy. The monument of a broken cross is known as Le Croix Ruissé, the broken cross. And it serves to commemorate a battle fought nearby during World War I. In the closet and dim of the clearing, the, the monument is radiantly bright. Clean white stone and crisp edges form a sharp distinction to the surroundings and draw my eye to the focus of the monument, a saviour who suffered, a saviour who faced brokenness and pain and indignity, a saviour who gave his all, sold out for mankind, love embodied. Yet I confess to feeling a little confused. I know and I'm thankful for all that Jesus gave on the cross. I'm literally eternally grateful for his sacrifice. Yet, whilst I know at times and when my mind allows it, I can vividly picture much of what Jesus did on the cross. In my mind's eye, it's usually the image of the empty cross that depicts Jesus' final victory over death and therefore the realisation of our struggle for grace and hope and redemption and yet here the cross is broken and it's laying seemingly abandoned on the ground and Jesus will, he's still on it. And I think what was the sculptor trying to say because the thought of my saviour lying on the ground almost trapped on a broken cross is a strange one. Where's the victory here? Where's the majestic triumph? Jesus is stranded, firmly nailed to a grounded and broken cross. And then I read the placard that tells the story behind the monument. This area, this field that now produces harvests of wheat was a field of horror during World War I. The placard contains an account of a French officer who walked this same farm tract after a battle had been fought. The officer recollects walking through the wreckage of a landscape, rural beauty just twisted. Fence post after fence post mark his journey through a broken landscape and he's drawn at the side of the road to the remains of a wooden cross. Broken violently near the base, the upper part of the cross lay on the violated ground and it's then through the horror of the scene before him that the officer witnesses the final grasping hands of life reaching for an eternal promise. Because laying at the foot of the broken and blackened section of the cross are the bodies of two soldiers. They lie devoid of life, faces turned to the broken cross which lay on the ground before them. Closer inspection reveals that their final act of life was to lay their lips on the broken wreckage of the cross. A kiss of life in a field of death. And it's an act of submission, of supplication. And then I understand why Jesus is still on the cross here. Because for these soldiers, I believe, he's exactly where he needed to be. After enduring who knows what, what horrors, what pain, as their life fled from them, they've crawled broken to the only place possible. A place of love, a place of rescue, a place of peace, a place of salvation. And they place their lips to the cross as an act, not of final desperation, because I think that had long since gone. 
but of supplication to one who could heal her and restore self and at the foot of the broken cross I believe that we're met by Jesus and their bare, chapped and broken lips met not charred wood but the hands of the Son of Man who lifted their heads poured out a torrent of compassion from the depths of his eyes into their emptying hearts and welcomed them home at the broken cross he met them in their pain and brokenness and indignity they'd not had time to prepare to clean up to approach in a set pan but came as they were he met them there and he loved them there and he healed them there and he cleaned them there their broken submission invited him to respond with love and maybe my untutored theology of where Jesus should or shouldn't be on a stone cross in a French field is all wrong because Jesus will always be exactly where he's always been ready to meet us at our point of need and we might walk to him and we might crawl to him but one thing remains the same when we arrive broken he is there would you stand with me and just close your eyes and I just believe this morning with gentle compassion and love God wants to meet you in your brokenness in your weakness in your sadness he wants to meet you where you are now and he wants to touch your life and he wants to heal your life and he wants to restore your life and it's just about choosing love this morning it's choosing to sacrifice self and say you know what my pride what I think I should be doing what I want to look like doesn't matter before God what matters is how I come to him and I come to him in the belief that he's my God I come this morning in the belief that Jesus died for me and I'm gonna sacrifice self I'm willing to be broken before you that you establish foundations in my life that bring restoration 